We have a few passages to study this morning. Kids, you're dismissed. Let's take our Bibles and start in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Have you ever thought about what made Jesus so effective in reaching people? Stop and let that settle in for a minute. Have you ever thought about what made Jesus so effective in reaching people? Not only the multitudes of people that follow him day after day, but individual people who sought him out. Now, the easiest answer, obviously, would be that he was the son of God. So, of course, when he healed people and when he did things that were miraculous, people were going to flock to that because they saw something that was unique. And yet there are many others who sought him out and followed him who didn't need a miracle and who didn't even necessarily believe. And yet they still followed him. They still were around him. Multitudes of people, the Bible says, not just a small crowd. We're talking hundreds, thousands of people day after day, walking the hills of Galilee, following Jesus, sitting down, listening to him. We know it was thousands because at one point they're hungry and Jesus feeds them and it was at least 5,000 people. So this is not a little pocket of people who are intrigued. This is a huge crowd. And yet it's hard for us, I think, to grasp how polarizing Jesus was. That he was not a a popular figure that everybody loved. Religion in Israel at that time was very detached. It was very uh, cold and very formal. And the average person was disconnected from it. The law was only taught by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had their own issues. They were arrogant and superior, and they were changing what the law said to fit their own bias. And many people had abandoned faith, because God hadn't spoken for 400 years. There had been silence. There were no more prophets. There was no more new word coming forth. It was a silent period for 400 years. And now, Jesus comes. And he shows up, and everything kind of changes, and And they might have heard about the nativity, but you got to remember that was three decades before. The average lifespan was in the 40s, maybe early 50s. So so 30 years was a long period of time. So maybe they had heard about that night in Bethlehem and, and had a little bit of understanding. But Jesus shows up and everything about him is unusual. The depth and wisdom of his teaching, the supernatural power of his actions. His interpersonal warmth, the the strong confrontation of the religious establishment, the the constant deflection away from himself, it all stood in stark contrast to what they knew, what they had seen from the religious leaders. And now Jesus comes and he's humble and he's uh, self-deferential and and he's teaching with a level where people are going, what in the world? We've never heard teaching like this. And then you add to it the miracles that he's doing And he is somebody that everybody had an opinion about. There was nobody that was neutral about Jesus. There still isn't. Nobody is neutral about Jesus Christ. But the people then had to make a decision. Some hated him. Some were vehement about their hatred for him. They resented his words. They didn't like his concern for people. They they resented inwardly that he took attention away from them. And others rejected him out of hand as a, as a fraud or, or something that, that couldn't be understood. But somehow he was blaspheming and somehow he was tricking the people. 
And then there was the group that was playing the angles, because there's always a group that's playing the angles, right? There was a group that was playing the angles and trying to get close to him and trying to, to work the situation so they could be popular with him and, and maybe get something out of him. And then there were the selfish people, some who had legitimate reasons for wanting to close close to him because they needed to be healed. And others who were just wanting to be on the in crowd. Now, despite all that, many people believed in Jesus. Many people loved him and trusted him and gave their lives to him. But, but whatever your response, whatever people reacted to Jesus, there's no question that everybody knew about him and everybody was drawn to him. The unsaved were intrigued. They came and they listened and many responded. Those who were spiritually sensitive were just overjoyed and encouraged and strengthened in their faith. Even the self-righteous people, even the people who, who counted on their own merit for salvation, they were aggravated, but they stayed close by. They were interested. Something was going on. They needed to know more. Now, again, we can say, why is that? Well, okay, he's God in flesh, so naturally people would want to be near him. But when we really examine his interactions with people more clearly, there's something there that, that's very unique. Something about his heart for people, something about the way that he approached people that, that we can learn from and we can use. And it's very, very simple this morning. I want to just give you three thoughts this morning that, that have to do with how Jesus ministered, how he spoke, what he felt, and what made him effective. And let me say at the outset, it has nothing to do with ministry strategy and it has nothing to do with tactical methodology. Christianity seems very enamored with that right now. There are countless books and conferences designed to advance the latest marketing model to show how you can fill your church, how you can get people in. Not really what we do with them once we get them in. We just want to get them in. And there's so much marketing there uh, that, that when you go to one of these conferences, Acts 2 gets a little lost. Very little emphasis on prayer, very little emphasis on the gospel, very little emphasis on evangelism, and a lot of emphasis on business strategy and managing the message. And what we're finding is that's starting to turn people off rather than attract them. I was reading an article by a woman uh, this week who was writing about coming back to the church, and she had wandered away, and she was trying to kind of reestablish, and she talked about what she was looking for, and a lot of it was was pretty self-serving, but there was one section that caught my attention. She wrote, we expected belonging. We expected grace and support and love. For a while we tried moving from one church to another. We were never looking for perfection. We weren't that naive. Some of us searched longer than others, but in the end, we faded out. We were looking for Jesus. Instead, we found programs, guilt, and awkward small talk. We found fog machines and five simple steps to spiritual growth. Now, there's nothing in Jesus' ministry, and we'll look at it in a moment, that looked like that. There was nothing manipulative. There was nothing fraudulent. There was nothing inauthentic. Instead, he reached people because he provided what they needed most. Truth. Kindness. Genuine care. Grace and forgiveness. And the answer to their spiritual needs. In fact, when we look at these texts, and we'll be brief this morning, when we look at these three texts, we're going to see what 
made Jesus so effective. And these three things are not complicated. They don't require seminary training. They don't require a special class. Every one of us can do them and every one of us is called to do them. So let's start here in Matthew chapter 9. Thank you for bringing your Bibles and turning. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount and from chapter 7, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, up to the first part of chapter 9, Jesus is doing a lot of healing and a lot of ministering to people. And we'll pick it up right here in verse 35. Actually, let's, yeah, let's start in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of people, uh, excuse me, sickness. Seeing the people, verse 36, Matthew 9, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now, there are three distinct aspects of Jesus's ministry that made him effective. And if we can model these in our lives, if this will be true of us and this will be true of our church, we will not need a strategy because the spirit will use it and will draw people to himself in radical ways. So what did Jesus do? Let's look at the first thing here in verse 36. The first characteristic that made Jesus so effective in reaching people and ministering to people is that he had genuine compassion for them. He had genuine compassion. He was moved by the spiritual condition of every person. That's why he came here. And when he came here, the Spirit details that he was moved with compassion. That's uh, in the original text. It's not in this particular translation. But that when he saw the crowds distressed and dispirited and discouraged, like sheep without a shepherd, that he was moved with compassion. Now, that's an interesting comparison. We've seen it before in Scripture that that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. We can picture that. We feel it viscerally in our hearts of what that looked like. Not just that they were wandering around trying to figure out what to do next or or that they're in this big crowd and they don't know where they're going and what they're going to do. That's not what the text is talking about. The text is talking about the spiritual implication, that they were aimless and purposeless and that they in their souls had no confidence. That's what sin does. Sin creates confusion. Sin rips away the confidence that your life has any meaning. It it robs us of joy. It it makes us confused and unmotivated. And it brings a lack of meaning. That's what sin does. And Jesus looks at the people and he sees them in this condition. He sees that they are aimless and purposeless and clueless. If you've ever watched sheep, you know how apt that description is. Sheep are not wise animals. They have no sense of leading. They need a shepherd to guide them and protect them and keep them from danger because if there's nobody there, they'll just wander off anywhere and they'll find problems. I have a Shetland sheepdog at home who's a little crazy in his head, but um, it's, it's interesting because he's bred to herd sheep. And I watch him in my yard and he's damaging my yard because he keeps running in circles because innate in his brain is I've got to corral something. I've got to run in circles because if there were sheep here and there aren't, 
I, 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 would have to, I would have to keep them in a tight circle because sheep are dumb and they'll wander off. So because we don't have sheep and we're never getting any, he just corrals the trees. So around my trees, I have big circles, a big path, and he'll run six seconds it takes. I've watched him and timed him. Six seconds, boom, 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 barking at the trees. I'm like, you're a little like a sheep maybe. <laughs> sheep have to be corralled. They have to be pulled in. Now notice in the text that Jesus looks at them, and he's not being judgmental that they're distressed like sheep. Nor is he frustrated. He's not indifferent. He's not condescending. He's not uncaring. He's not going, look at those stupid people. Instead, the text says that, that he, you can almost see it, I tried to picture it this week, that his face is anguished, that he's broken by it, that, that he's, his heart hurts, that, that these people have no spiritual guidance. And the text literally says in the original language, that he felt compassion in his gut. It's called bowels of compassion. Right down here in the middle where you kind of, oh, oh, I'm just I'm anguished. But that's what the text is saying. Jesus looks at them and he feels it. And he's broken and he says, they're sheep without a shepherd. Feeling that isn't always easy, is it? Feeling that kind of compassion for people. Part of the reason is we usually feel sorry for ourselves. So why should we feel sorry for somebody else? Listen, I got my own problems in life. This is what we say sometimes, even though we don't want to say it out loud. But let's just admit that we do. I got my own problems. I don't need to worry about somebody else. Let me just deal with what I'm dealing with. And, and then there's the culture that makes us very jaded. We see rampant selfishness in our culture. We see the entitlement mentality. We see people working the system. We see the government complying with that. And it's hard sometimes, isn't it, not to feel some resentment and some callousness toward it. That has to be why, if we look back at the text, that Jesus follows up his compassion by giving us a calling. He says, the harvest of souls is waiting to be reaped, but the workers need to go out into the field and do the work. In other words, the Spirit is saying to us, I'm not going to do it all. You have responsibility. I will fill you and I'll equip you, but I'm filling you and equipping you, not so you can sit on your couch and say, I am filled and equipped. I'm filling you and equipping you so you can go do the assignment like we talked about last week. Go do the assignment of going out and harvesting these souls, notice, that are ready to be harvested. But before we go out, we have to have the mindset of Christ. We have to be filled with compassion. Because if we don't, we're going to be bitter and we're going to begrudge the work. We need to have his compassion so the work will be joyful. Notice the subtlety of verse 38 for a second. If we can't feel that heart for people's lostness and their need for Christ, then we at least need to pray that people will go. But that doesn't give us an out. Jesus fully expects that those of us who have been redeemed, like we just talked about at the communion table, that those of us who have been redeemed by his mercy now will gladly go do the work of harvesting because we have been redeemed and we want to see other people be redeemed. 
Listen, if we're feeling burned out or jaded or frustrated or, or just irritated by the world or irritated by people's coldness to the Lord, then we need to go to the Lord and we need to pray for the heart of Jesus. We need to pray for courage and boldness and an urgency to get into the fields. This week, I am hoping and praying that we're going to announce something that all of us can do to contribute to this. And we're going to provide more opportunities as a church to do it together because that's what the Lord's called us to do. Wednesday night at prayer meeting, we're going to take time and we're going to pray that we have the compassion that Jesus has. Because I don't know about you, but I need it. I need more compassion. I need more heart for people. I need more brokenness over the losses of the world. Rather than being frustrated and irritated and saying, well, look at what's happening. It's so annoying. Instead, we need to be broken by it and start to pray for people and say, how can I minister to you? How can I show you compassion? Now, let's turn over to Acts 10 because there's a second principle real quick that Jesus modeled that's so simple, so simple that it's easy to overlook it. In fact, the Lord taught it to me this week again, or reinforced it to me again this week. And my seven-year-old son even got the spiritual application on his own. Acts chapter 10, just one verse here, verse 36. Acts 10, 36. Peter's preaching. He says, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel. I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. 38, thank you. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The second characteristic that made Jesus effective, and this is very basic, is that he went around doing good. I was in the grocery store on Friday, and as we walked in, I was with Matthew, and he said he wanted to ride in one of those special race car carts. Now, he's a little too big for it, but I thought, you know, soon he's going to leave for college, so I'm not going to say no, right? Well, there were two there, and I'm telling you this story. Please understand why I'm telling this story, because it's got a spiritual application. There were two there, and one was soaking wet from the rain, and the other one was dry. There's nobody else around, so he climbs into the dry one. And as he's doing that, off to my right, I notice a lady who has a young child. Maybe, I don't know, I'm terrible with this. Maybe, maybe nine, ten months. And she's moving toward the wet cart. And I thought, that's not good. So I said, hold on a second. Let me dry that off for you. And I went over to, you know, they got the thing with the wet naps. And, and I did that. And, and the wet nap just laughed at the cart. It was just like, yeah, there's a puddle there. I can't possibly do that work. So you didn't know wet naps talked to you, right? So I said, hold on, let me run to the men's room and let me get some paper towels. But then I remembered that the men's room at the grocery store only has air dryers, which aren't going to help me at this point. So I don't know why I just felt really led to help this young mom. And she's standing there looking at me, wondering why I'm going to this effort. And I didn't plan on it. I didn't have a motive. I was just thinking I need to be kind. If this was my wife, I would want somebody to do this for me. So I knew there's no way I'm going to dry it off. So I said to Matthew, Matthew, hop out of the cart and let's let this lady take the cart. Now, to my son's credit, I'm so proud of him, he didn't skip a beat. So I lifted him out and gave the cart to her. And she's kind of 
And she said, thank you. The whole thing took 20 seconds maybe. Well, Matthew took it in stride, and we got another cart, and he climbed, and he said, this is cart's better because it's bigger anyway. I, I like him. He's a good kid. We get to checkout, and I say, bud, climb out because I want to unload the groceries, and I'm going to need to pull up the, part, the cart. And I said, why don't you go bag the groceries because there's nobody there? Well, as he starts to put the, ba- the boxes into the bag, the checker lady, the lady who was working there, came up, and she said, you're going to put me out of a job and kind of laughed. And she said, you're doing such a great job. She reached in her pocket, and she handed him 50 cents. Now, I've never had that happen in 49 years of going to the grocery store. But immediately, the Lord impressed upon my heart the spiritual principle. And I thought, all right, I'm going to be the great pastor dad. I'm going to impart my spiritual wisdom on my child as I walk out. This will be awesome. Teaching moment here. So I said, when we get to the car, I want to I wanna give you a spiritual lesson. He said, okay. Walk out. As we walk in the car, he says, I gave up my cart and I got 50 cents. Seven-year-olds have theology, don't they? And I thought, you already, you already got it. What an illustration of how the Lord blesses us when we do good and when we sacrifice. There was no motive other than to be kind. There was no expectation that the Lord would look at that simple little act and somehow reward it. I certainly had no expectation, and neither did my son, that we would learn a spiritual principle. And yet, if, if Matthew had whined or resisted or, or whatever, I doubt that the checkout lady hands him 50 cents because the Lord's not going to bless when we're selfish, Right? But what an opportunity for him and for me to learn that the principle of going around doing good is blessed by the Lord. Kindness and compassion are so important, especially in relation to the ministry that we've been called to. D.L. Moody said that the hardest thing God has to do is make people kind. People can sing, and they can preach, and they can have spiritual gifts, and they can evangelize. But 1 Corinthians tells us, if we're not genuinely kind, if we don't love, it amounts to nothing. Because the message gets lost to those who need it. I heard a pastor once say that unkindness is what makes people outside the church not want to be Christians. And that's a sobering thought. That people look at us and they evaluate the gospel through our lives and they evaluate the gospel by whether we model what Jesus did. People are looking for authentic compassion and kindness and grace, especially and only from people whose lives have been transformed by God's compassion and kindness and grace. So if we've been changed, like we talked about, now we're supposed to exemplify that. And that kindness can't be manipulative. It can't have an agenda other than to point people to Christ. I didn't plan on walking the grocery store. I'm going to point a lady with a child to Christ by giving her a race car cart. And yet, that's hopefully what she saw. 
as we provide more opportunities to do outreach and evangelism as a church, this will be crucial to our effectiveness. But it has to start before that. Every day we have the opportunity and the responsibility to do exactly what Jesus did. And we can go around doing good. We can practice it at work. We can do it with our family at the holidays. We can do it at the grocery store. People who don't yet know Jesus Christ need to see this. And when we do it, the Lord will bless it. Even my seven-year-old got that that week, this week. Now, compassion and kindness are wonderful. And there's definitely a need for more of that in the body of Christ toward the world. But there's a third component that's just as important. Turn to one more passage real quick, John chapter 14. And we'll conclude with this. John chapter 14. These are really, really, really familiar verses, but we need to see them in a fresh way this morning because they're very key to what made Jesus so effective. Even though this is the one characteristic that polarized people the most. That being said, even though this is going to be a polarizing characteristic, we cannot afford to be intimidated by it or to be hesitant in fulfilling it. Look at what Jesus says. You know the text, John chapter 14 and verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, the third characteristic, very simple, the third characteristic of what made Jesus so effective is that he spoke truth with grace. He spoke truth with love. Now, verse 6 is one that we all know and we all love. And when we talk to people about Christ, we use it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. But, but this is something that made the Philistines really hot under the collar. Uh, not the Philistines, the Pharisees. Made the Philistines hot under the collar too, I guess. This one ticked off the Pharisees. Because they did not want to believe that. And they didn't want the people to believe that. This principle, John 14, 6, is what causes so many people now to reject Christ because they say there can't just be one way. There have to be multiple ways to God. If there is a God, then it can't just be this narrow focus on Jesus Christ. There have to be many different aspects, many different ways that that God will accept you. But notice the context. Thomas, his own disciple, says, I don't understand. How are we supposed to be saved? What happens? How would we be allowed to go to heaven, as Jesus talks about in verses 1 to 3? And in answering, Jesus offers no equivocation and no doubt. He says, I alone am the only way, the only truth, and the only source of life. And there is absolutely no way to be saved or have eternal life without trusting fully in me. Now, there is no question that that challenged every facet of Judaism. There's no question today that that challenges every single world religion because every single world religion is based on salvation by doing rather than salvation by trusting. So every religion that's ever existed outside of Christianity is challenged by John 14.6. And John 14.6 is the crucible of whether or not we are going to be saved. Now, Jesus was effective because he did something that the church in the first part of the 21st century 
has lost confidence in doing or somehow has become convinced is not effective. Here's what Jesus did. He spoke the truth. He boldly challenged sin. He challenged pride in individuals. He challenged the wickedness of the culture because that is the only way any person can understand their sin and their need for a Savior. Jesus never backed down because truth is that important and it's that life-changing. If anything, Jesus was uncomfortably confrontational. If anything, Jesus went right at people. He challenged the hypocrisy and the self-sufficiency of the Pharisees. He called out the hidden sin of the woman at the well. He called Zacchaeus to stop stealing from people. He showed the fallacy of self-salvation and the rich young ruler who was so confident in all that he had. He called it out, not nastily, not not condescendingly, not ridiculing people. He called them out with love and with grace. And this truth now applies to us. Look at it, we're done. This truth is needed at this time in history. We cannot back off from truth at this point. We cannot trust anything or anyone other than the Lord and His Word. And we can't be shy and we can't compromise on biblical conviction because that's what appeals to people's hearts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. Not by cleverness, not by strategy, not by manipulation, not by trying to work it. No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the devil lies like crazy to get us to believe that if we speak truth, it will push people away. But I'm telling you this morning, it will not. People are looking for truth. They're looking for answers. And they want it delivered with kindness and grace and mercy. They have been turned off by the judgmentalism of a minority. And they've been turned off by the majority that has compromised the truth. When we combine kindness and truth and compassion, people's lives change. And it's so simple. Jesus just went around having compassion and doing good and speaking truth with grace. And when they bring a woman to him who's committed adultery and they throw her at his feet and they say, there, Jesus, the law condemns her. What are you going to do now? Trying to trap him, trying to, to get him to condemn her. Instead, he does what all of us should do. He looked at her and said, yes, your sin is wrong, but I'm willing to forgive you. Because the compassion of God is that he doesn't back down from truth. And yet the truth is that he is willing to forgive those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, God's gift of salvation and forgiveness washes over people. We're done. This is a powerful combination that's been proven for 2,000 years to draw people to faith in Christ. And we can't afford to shy away from it. Proverbs 3 says, don't let kindness and truth leave you. Listen now. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and men. 
If you and I want to know how to be more effective, as effective as Jesus was in telling people about him and ministering to them at their point of need, then kindness and truth need to be wrapped around their neck. Everybody's got a tablet now, right? Walk around with my tablet, whether it's an iPhone or an iPod or a, or a tablet or what are they, Samsung, Galaxy. I don't know what they are. I can't keep up with it. They change every four minutes. God says there's a tablet on your heart. And on the tablet of your heart, you need to write kindness and truth. When you people look at you and me, when they see what is your life about, they need to see kindness and truth. And when we do that, unsaved people will be drawn to the grace of God. And spiritually sensitive people will be encouraged and strengthened. And even those who are self-righteous, both religious and non-religious, they may be aggravated, but they're going to be intrigued. And then we say, Lord, I'm available for you. I'm embodying kindness and truth on the tablet of my heart. Lord, spirit now, work. Draw people to yourself. Jesus walked among them. And he felt compassion. And he did good. And he spoke truth. Now he says, follow my example. Let's ask the Lord for help. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, it challenges us. It makes us a little uncomfortable. It threatens to push us out of our comfort. But Lord, what a simple calling you've given to us this morning to follow the example of Jesus. Having a heart for people. Being kind to them. Ministering to them. Loving them. And speaking the truth with kindness and with grace that would draw them toward his salvation. Lord, every one of us can do that. Lord, it's time for us to be bold. It's time for us to be confident. It's time for us to ask you for help that this would characterize our lives. Lord, that on the tablet of our heart, that kindness and truth would show up. Lord, you've given us a tremendous opportunity in this city and in this region to minister to people and to draw people toward you. And I pray you would give us confidence this week to do just that. Lord, provide the opportunities for us to minister to people, to show them the love of Christ. Because somebody did that for us once, and Lord, here we are worshiping you as our Savior and Redeemer. Fill us with your Spirit, we pray. Empty us of self. Fill us with you so that we can do this great work that you've called us to. Lord, give us confidence this week. Give us boldness. Strengthen us for this work. It's a great work. We're honored that we're called to do this. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, for what you're going to do in our midst. You're ready to work. Make us ready and willing, we pray in Jesus' name. I really feel that the Lord is leading us instead of a uh, closing song this morning, that we lift up uh, Pastor Paul and his family, and especially uh, Julie's mother, Joyce Bateman. Um, many of you have gotten to know her as she's visited us, and uh, 
She's down in Arkansas right now, and she's going to have some very, very significant surgery this week. Um, and uh, the doctors have told her exactly how serious this is, and so we as a body need to really lift up um, Joyce and lift up Julie. Julie's traveling back and forth, um, and just the whole family as they kind of go through this. So I'm going to ask uh, Tom to come up, and Paul, why don't you come on up here too, and we're just going to pray uh, for you and your family, and especially for Joyce. So let's all stand, and we can just lift a hand up to uh, to pray for this and uh, lift them up right now. Father God, we come to you today, and we just have humble hearts, recognizing that that uh, you care for us, Lord. Uh, one of the uh, one of your characteristics in Matthew nine is. Pastor Paul shared today was that you went around and you healed uh, all that you came in contact with, all that needed healing. So, Lord, we know that uh, you are the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, Lord. And we just uh, can stand today and pray confidently that um, that you are a God that heals, you are a God that cares, you are a God that loves. And, uh, Lord, we just uh, want to pray for Paul and uh, Julie today and, and certainly Joyce as she faces this surgery. So, so Lord, we just come to you today. We just praise you. We thank you for who you are, not because of what you do, but because of who you are, Lord. You are so worthy of our praise. And yet today we uh, come confidently that knowing that you do care and that you are a God that, that heals. So we pray for Joyce uh, this week as she goes through this serious surgery. We pray uh, for the doctors to guide the surgeon's hands, Lord, we pray for a successful surgery. We pray for quick healing, uh, recovery. We pray for Paul as he uh, is home and, and manages his house, Lord, his household, his children. Go with them because we know that they're concerned and that, they're, uh, that they can be anxious, Lord. So we first just pray for, for confidence in you, Lord, that you would do a great work. We pray for Julie as she travels back and forth. Give her rest. Give her peace. And, uh, Lord, we just praise you today for doing a great work. Uh, continue to bless and encourage and lift up. In every way, we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You know, uh, the Lord is so faithful to answer prayer, right? And if you have a prayer request, I want to let you know each week at the Welcome Center, there are prayer request cards. If you have a prayer request, anything, Fill that out, drop it in the box. We'll pray for it Wednesday night at prayer meeting. We pass out those cards and we call out to the Lord to ask Him to work. And just like we just did, the Lord hears that prayer. He's not indifferent today. He's not sitting in heaven distracted. He knows exactly what your needs are. He showed that through Jesus. So let's call on Him. Let's continue to be a church that is marked by prayer because that's when God works. So I want to encourage you, stop by the Welcome Center, fill out a card. Let us know how we can pray for you and minister to you. And if there's any way we can do that, just on a regular basis, tell one of us, okay? We'd love to be able to minister to you and help you because that's what the family of God does, right? How many know that's true? It's good to be in the house of the Lord, even if it's a little warm, right? God's so good to us. He's so gracious. We've seen that all throughout the morning. Now let's go tell other people about it. Let's tell people how good the Lord is because He's changed our lives. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night for every day.